Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We have a lot of great articles for you today, so let's get started. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First First link. link. Our first link comes to us from newatlas.com by Michael Irving. It's titled, Highly Efficient Process Makes Seawater Drinkable in 30 Minutes. Ooh, that sounds convenient. (laughs) Not only is it convenient, it's super effective. So this really does a lot to address access to clean, safe drinking water across the globe. And there's a new study that's come out using a material called a Metal Organic Framework, or MOF, to filter pollutants out of seawater. So it can generate huge amounts of fresh water per day while using far less energy than other methods that we're used to. These metal organic frameworks are extremely porous materials with high surface areas. If you were to unpack one teaspoon of this MOF stuff, it could cover a football field. Hmm. And because it has that much surface area, it makes it really excellent and ideal for grabbing hold of molecules and particles. And so this team developed a new type of MOF. They called it PSP MIL 53, (laughs) super catchy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so what they did is place this material in the water and it selectively pulls ions out of the liquid and holds them to the surface, kind of like a magnet. And within 30 minutes, the MOF was able to reduce the total dissolved solids in the water from over 2,000 parts per million to under 500. Wow. That's super impressive. So it doesn't just pull out salt. Correct. It also pulls out pollutants. They were basically able to produce just under 37 gallons of fresh water per kilogram of MOF per day. And so once the MOF is also full of particles, when it's sucked up as much as it can, it's easy and quick to clean for reuse. All you have to do is put it in sunlight, which causes it to release the captured salts in as little as four minutes. So it's faster acting than other techniques. It requires way less energy throughout the cycle. So is the catch that it's really expensive? Because that's generally what it is. <laughs> my, my guess is probably just because they've just developed this new type, you know, depending mm-hmm. on who developed it and how greedy they want to be about patents or licensing or anything <laughs> like that. Let's hope it's going to be a little bit more like a polio vaccine where the person who discovered it was like, why would I even want to patent it? This is something that should be available to everyone. So. Fingers crossed, but this is definitely something that a lot of people could use all over the world. Yeah, very cool. Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from theintercept.com, and it's a little longer, but very good. It is called The Junk Science Cops Use to Decide You're Lying. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So in a training session that was billed as cutting edge, dozens of law enforcement professionals signed up to learn about new tools for detecting deception from a human lie detector who calls herself Eyes for Lies. Her (laughs) real name is Renee Ellery, and she claims that she's just one of 50 people identified by scientists as having the ability to spot deception with exceptional accuracy. Hmm. So a flyer for the event hosted by Wisconsin's high intensity drug trafficking area was included among a trove of law enforcement documents that were hacked and posted online in June, and this big leak was called Blue Leaks. 
So hmm. the promo copy leans really heavily into Ellery's skill at ferreting out deception in others, and that training participants would learn how to identify anger, contempt, and disgust before words are even spoken. Wasn't there a TV show about this with Tim Roth called Lie to Me, where basically he put himself out to be like a micro-expressions expert? That sounds yeah. like this is what they're talking about. Yeah. But Ellery's lie detection training is based on what many psychologists say are largely discredited theories, if not junk it's science. total crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the Blue Leaks documents contain numerous flyers for these sorts of trainings offered to police agencies across the world, and many of them promote methods of interviewing and interrogation, lie detection, and detecting danger that have been linked to false confessions and wrongful convictions. Mm -hmm. The search for a foolproof method of lie detection has a long history, says Richard Leo, who's a professor of law and psychology at the University of San Francisco, and it just doesn't mm -hmm. exist, he says. Yeah, yeah. So Ellery vehemently denies that what she's been teaching has been widely discredited. Of course. Well, she would, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So she was one of 50 individuals identified as a expert in deception as part of the so-called Wizards Project. And I actually ran across this idea of what are called truth wizards like 10 years ago. So <laughs> mm -hmm. it seems like that hasn't evolved at all. No, since then. and I mean, right. the fact um, that they're using such antiquated, usually aligned with fiction terminology to discover this is inherently suspect. Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, the individuals that Ekman identified as exceptional human lie detectors were just a result of chance. Because if you test 15,000 people or flip 15,000 coins, chances are that about 50 of them will land heads up 10 times in a row. Right, right. Yeah. So like in terms of just the sheer amount of people he studied, some people probably just got really lucky. Yeah. Broken clock can be right twice a day. Or 50 times a 1500 minute. <laughs> exactly that many times. <laughs> <laughs> so... Years of research has demonstrated that these behavioral cues like eye blinking, arm crossing, a voice rising or dropping in pitch just aren't reliable indicators of deception. And these police officers do believe they're able to detect liars at much higher rates than you and I are. Then they'll convict people based on that and become more confident. It just becomes this really dangerous loop. Right. Mm hmm. So The Intercept actually reached out to Ellery as well, and she first wrote that she wouldn't have time to explain things to the author unless <laughs> she took one of her courses. Of course. And her master class is currently priced at $19.50 per person. That's $1,000.950 per uh. person. And then noted that she's not actively doing classes right now. <laughs> and I'll skim over her response, but she has kind of a very egotistical expression of her abilities. Mm -hmm. She says, I find at times with my gift, it's akin to seeing color in a world where other people live in a colorblind world. Wow. Yeah, she she rambles on for a little bit and says, you know, at a point I learned I can't change the world alone, but I can educate those who are open to learning and they have thanked me endlessly and <laughs> is making other comparisons like, you were saying that I shouldn't teach because I can't make people like me? Does that mean that Nobel Prize winners, acclaimed scientists, and researchers who achieve great things shouldn't teach other people because other people may not reach the same success? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. Th there's a lot included in this article, like oh, yeah. two other whole paragraphs that she's kind of rambling about. And unfortunately, Ellery's is not the only training program that was found among these Blue Leaks documents that sells questionable science to law enforcement. There's also a California-based group that has provided training in neurolinguistic programming, mm. which teaches that deception can be detected by eye-tracking movements, a theory that's been mm. widely discredited. There's also a suite of programs from the Subconscious Communication Training Institute and Spotting Lies, which are both outfits headed by Stephen Rhodes, who is a former police chief, current sheriff's department investigator, and retired Christian rodeo clown. Oh. 
(laughs) (laughs) Didn't see that coming. Author just wanted to throw that one in there. Uh, (laughs) And so leaked documents indicate that Rhodes Group has provided a number of trainings over the last decade for law enforcement across the country, uh, including the Department of Homeland Security and Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, featuring lessons in how body language can include, you know, facial gestures and human emotions, eye movement and gaze behavior, and gestures involving the torso uh, that can be used in interrogations and reveal not only deception, but danger for officers. Yeah, so much of this training seems to prime the bias and couch people into a context where they're going to respond with violence or seeing everything as a threat. Exactly, yeah. And I guess there's a reason we haven't already seen, you know, like 20 books on this practice already. I mean, there are 20 books, but, you know, 20 books that are very successful. Mm -hmm. Books that people care about, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. So while the science doesn't support the efficacy of subconscious communication techniques, there's ample research to support a different approach, one that is decidedly non-confrontational, encourages open conversation, and emphasizes rapport building. So support for this approach in the U.S. comes in part through the work of the High Value Detainee Interrogation Group, which was a federally funded interagency effort created by the Obama administration to advance the science and practice of interrogation and end Bush-era torture practices against terrorism suspects. Good. Mm -hmm. Does that federal agency still exist in the current administrative climate or... Yeah, there's a parenthetical right here. The HIG was basically abandoned by the Trump. Yeah. That's yeah. that's how it goes. Ugh. Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely there's obviously something seductive about knowing that you have a trick to unlock other people's behavior. I mean, I can see why it's so appealing to certain officers sure. to believe that you can somehow quantify this thing and get to the truth and do your job faster or better. Yeah. And it's mm-hmm. a genuine yeah. problem that does need to be addressed. How can we pick out when people are lying? But, yeah. you know, I'm assuming that this is focusing on retail crime versus corporate white collar crime. Well, that's where all the psychopaths are and a certain percentage of ceos are assumed to be psychopaths yes. <laughs> <laughs> next link next, next link. link all right well we have a little bit of a special treat here our next article was actually written by alan bellows hey. uh, it has a little bit of a sad intro it's kind of a bummer uh, basically in 1984 there was a truck of migrants passing through cameroon and it was kind of a misty night and then for some reason their engine just sputtered and died And, you know, with the opportunity to sort of fix the truck and stretch their legs, everybody got out of the truck except for two who were riding on the very top up on the roof. And within moments, everyone who had gotten off the truck collapsed and died on the spot. (gasps) And it was, in fact, as you might expect, a kind of poison gas. But it wasn't Mm -hmm. a terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. It was a natural phenomenon. A nearby lake had exploded. What? Whoa. Yeah. And unfortunately, they figured out what happened because it happened again at a different lake called Lake Nyos. So the first incident in Lake Monoon, 37 were dead, including the 10 on the truck. But at Lake Nyos, 1,800 died, plus another 3,500 farm animals. Oh, my God. This was enough to get national attention. And so the U.S. and other countries sent aid and scientists, and that's how they were able to sort of figure out what was going on. So there were two aspects to this phenomenon, which is tragic but also very cool. Um, The lake is very deep but very narrow with these steep sides. And so what happens is that surface winds are not able to churn the water enough to get to the deepest layers. And the water becomes stratified where these cold layers at the bottom are undisturbed for decades or even centuries. And then the second key is that the lake sits atop a volcanic vent that it's not a volcano that erupts, but it sort of slowly leaks carbon dioxide up through the rock. 
And the cold and the pressure of this particular lake shape keeps the carbon dioxide trapped in the super cold, lower, deeply pressured layers of the lake. So it just sort of sits there building and building. Then, like shaking a soda bottle, something moved. There may have been an earthquake or a landslide. Nobody really knows. But what happened was the water churned. Some amount of the cold layer was able to swirl up into the warmer layer, where it rapidly depressurized and began to rise. And, of course, this creates kind of an upward suction, which draws more cold water up into the warm layers. And ultimately, you get this chain reaction of an explosion just out of the middle of the lake, similar to like when you drop a Mentos into a Diet Coke bottle. It just is an unexpected, sudden explosion upward. That in itself isn't really enough to kill people. There's a little bit of a tsunami at the end of the lake. But the real problem is that what this is expelling is millions of tons of gas. And the gas is a mixture of carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, plus some traces of hydrochloric acid, just for fun. Yeesh. And it's heavier than air. So it immediately settles back onto the ground and starts kind of slithering back down the hills toward the lake. And it poisons everyone who breathes it. If you're not on high ground, you're going to die. So that was sort of the explanation. They said another telltale sign is that uh, within a day or two, the swirled lower water in the lake is very iron rich. And so as the water comes up along with the carbon dioxide, a whole bunch of iron is mixed into the upper layers. And once it's near the surface, it oxidizes. And so the lake that has just exploded turns rust red. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. And that was what happened both at Lake Nyos and at the earlier lake. They had references to the fact that Lake Monoon had turned rust red as well after this inexplicable tragedy. So, you know, the scientists kind of determined what had happened, and they determined that the Lake Nyos explosion only released 2% of the gas that's held down in the depths. Holy cow. They can't fix it. They can't predict when the next explosion will occur. It's definitely going to occur again. I mean, this is just an inevitable thing. But unfortunately, they can't talk people into moving away from these lakes. You know, there's villages set up Mm. here and they're, you know, basically these white scientists coming in and going, listen, we know something that's going to (laughs) happen and you have to trust us. And they're like, no, we're not going to move. We have our whole lives here. Yeah. And since then, they've studied other lakes in the area because it's this whole volcanic system underneath this area of the country. And they found an even larger site at Lake Kivu in Rwanda. And the fossil record from the surrounding land indicates a massive biological die-off about every thousand years or so. This is clearly a lake that is set to explode at some point. And the danger here, of course, is if Lake Kivu explodes, about two million people would die. You know, again, this is them trying to convince locals this is a problem. You really need to move. And they're just saying, no, we'll take our chances. Which, you know, if you look at California, there's people who say, yeah, I'll take my chances on an earthquake. So I can't say. Sure. Or hurricane zones. Yeah. So the government of Rwanda did install some large pipes that kind of reach all the way down to the bottom and constantly pump a set amount of cold water to the surface. And they look like little fountains, like there's just this little circle in the middle of the lake that's just shooting water up constantly. But the scientists say it's not enough. It's not removing enough carbon dioxide. The threat of explosion is still very much there. Mm -hmm. But this is a relevant subject of study, even outside of volcanic regions, because one of the, quote, big ideas for climate change is to capture CO2 in the atmosphere and force it to the bottom of the ocean, where it is assumed that the temperature and pressure would presumably keep it down there, right? It's a sort of forced sequestering of this carbon dioxide at the bottom of the ocean. And you really only need to look at these exploding lakes to realize, well, there could be ways that that goes wrong, right? That's not necessarily something Mm -hmm. we want to set ourselves up for. Yeah. So there really is no... There's no happy ending to this one. It's a really just sad phenomenon that we know is going to happen. It's just a question of when. 
and we should, you know, study it more. But there are no magic solutions to any of this stuff, I think. No. Yeah, I hope we don't add more carbon dioxide to the carbon dioxide problem. I mean, isn't that just like building a bigger bomb or fighting fire with fire? I don't know. Right. I'm mixing up my metaphors. <laughs> Yeah, no, it definitely seems like putting at the bottom of the ocean is a Band-Aid solution at best, right? Like, you don't need to be causing tsunamis on the coastline because you're trying to keep the water level from rising at the coastline. <laughs> <laughs> Next link? Next link. All right, sounds like we could use a wine break here. So we're going to head over to Atlas Obscura. And this article is looking at Florence's wine windows and how the coronavirus is bringing them back. Oh. Basically, there are these little wine windows or buchette del vino around Italian cities, largely centered in Florence. And the article does have pictures. They look like these cute little sort of flat on the bottom and then cylindrical oval round around the top, kind of like a little mouse hole, but a little bit bit larger and they're big enough to accommodate a glass of wine and a hand and they've got these little doors and they're coming in really handy while we're in a pandemic and people want to go out and get a glass of wine. <laughs> Why were they there in the first place? I mean, I'm assuming it wasn't a previous pandemic. <laughs> well, it certainly came in handy during the plague, but it's believed that these really kind of came around when people were using them as kind of like an early farmer's market in which producers could sell directly to customers without a middleman or associated taxes. So it was mm. almost kind of like a speakeasy workaround sort of thing, but okay. obviously during the 17th century when we had the plague they came in super handy because you know because pandemic right right and the windows were kind of popular for centuries but then fell out of use during the 20th century where we had different supply chain cultural habits and things like that but there has been a society called the wine windows association with the goal of trying to draw renewed attention to these florentine relics a lot of them have been painted over or lost or plastered over or even graffitied and so they really wanted to make the public interested in them again and their history, trying to put plaques near them to solidify their historical and heritage status. Uh, but they're really cute. They're very charming. They do look sort of like elevated mouse holes. <laughs> Some of them kind of look like they've been restored along newer additions or revisions to buildings and things like that. But this feels like what they really need is now they need to invent really narrow takeout containers so they can like fit the food also through that window. <laughs> Like, I imagine the size is a problem. Yeah, they're definitely more vertically oriented. So anything that is going to be, you know, more beverage oriented, some of them are not only selling right. wine, but they're also doing gelato and coffee. But if you're getting like a bunch of, you know, drunken noodles at a Thai restaurant, you're probably out of luck. <laughs> I like the idea that there's just this cornucopia of stuff behind the window. And maybe you could just be like, well, surprise me. And then, <laughs> right. then <you> just get <laughs> something past you through the window and then mm -hmm. you're happy yeah like instead of smoothies we can just apply that to a whole willy wonka you know spectrum of food i want a full roast beef thanksgiving <laughs> plate but just put it in a cup yeah <laughs> next link next link okay this article comes to us from the bbc and it is titled the millions being made from cardboard theft Ooh. So getting all your cardboard recycled may often seem like a pain, but there's a ton of money to be made from all of this so-called beige gold. <laughs> <laughs> and this is attracting criminals from around the world. What? So apparently they're making just a fortune from stealing used cardboard that's been left out to be recycled and just selling it on. 
This also means that legitimate recycling firms and the city and other local authorities who take a cut from the sales are missing out on tens of millions of dollars. Wait, what is recycled so, old janky cardboard even good for? Who's who's paying a premium for that? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's <laughs> mostly for just, you know, getting recycled into eco-green things. A lot of it is going to Southeast Asia, China, other places like that. It's just getting sold on to whoever would use it. And essentially with anything that you steal, you sell it at a cheaper price. So that's probably a big part of the reason mm. as well. Mm -hmm. But also with the recent shortages with COVID, there's been a huge increase in cost of the cardboard as well. So huh. that's also pumped up crime quite a bit. So the BBC interviewed a shopkeeper in the bustling Chamartin district of central Madrid, and they said, to be honest, most of us don't care who takes it away as long as it goes. And mm -hmm. behind him stand two of the Spanish capital's well-known municipal recycling bins, which until February of this year had been raided daily by one of the city's numerous recycled cardboard trafficking gangs. <laughs> so a few miles away at the headquarters of the Nature Protection Service, or Ciprona, of the Spanish Guardia Civil Police Force is a a map of Madrid covered in a bunch of different colored dots, and 18 colors mark out 18 different routes used by the various gangs. Hmm. So, Soprona was brought in to help tackle the problem in 2018, after the Madrid city's police force was unable to solve the issue with its policy of fining anyone caught stealing used <laughs> cardboard. Mm -hmm. So, back in February, the Soprona-led Operation Hardy, which is the Romanian word for paper, leapt into action, and 42 suspected cardboard gang members were arrested on suspicion <laughs> of environmental offenses and money laundering. Okay, right, cardboard right. gang members? Hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> the numbers, though, get pretty big. They're accused of stealing and shipping more than 67,000 tons of waste a year Whoa. per year. Yeah, since 2015 at an average value of 10 million euros what? per year. That's crazy. Yeah. See, I have to appreciate, like organized crime is bad, but I can appreciate when they are truly organized. Like it feels like they just, <laughs> they, they've created a competitive recycling service. And frankly, it sounds like they're doing a better, more efficient job at it. I don't know. I feel like let them have it. Like You know, praise good project <laughs> management where you find it in the wild, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they are our most industrious citizens in the end. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so in this case that's been delayed by the coronavirus pandemic, the trial is due to take place later this year. The police have photos of some of the men crawling in and out of these recycling bins. So, like, they're really just getting down and dirty with it. Mm -hmm. The photographic evidence came despite the Madrid Council deliberately introducing dumpsters with smaller holes in 2016. And the shopkeeper they interviewed joked, perhaps the thieves just got thinner. <laughs> so, while figures aren't available for how much recycled cardboard is stolen globally, experts do say it's very much a worldwide problem and there are vast amounts of money to be made. Hmm. The annual value of the legitimate trade in recycled cardboard and other papers is expected to climb to $5.4 billion wow. by 2024, up from $4.3 billion in 2017. Ooh, wow. And it's not that surprising when you consider the continuing rise in online shopping and the fact that most consumer goods are delivered to you in cardboard boxes right. that are made from recycled fiber. And this is said to be 93% recycled for boxes in Europe. So I didn't actually realize that they use that much recycled cardboard right and, you know who knows what cardboard you're looking at is recycled or isn't really hmm. 
Over the past decade, used cardboard has mostly been sent to China to be pulped and turned into the new boxes that its vast export sector requires, and it's made some Chinese people very rich, such as the billionaire Zhang Yin, also called the Queen of Trash, whose firm <laughs> specializes in importing cardboard from the U.S. Mm. Yeah, so like any commodity, the price of recycled cardboard ebbs and flows, according to demand. But at the start of coronavirus, it spiked to 130 pounds. And getting hold of cardboard was a bit name your price at the time. And historically, it's even been higher at 200 pounds a ton 10 years ago. Wow. Now it's only sitting around 70 to 80 as demand has decreased relative to the coronavirus situation. But it's per ton. So like your average homeowner couldn't like save up all their cardboard boxes for a few months and then make any money off of it. You're still talking about huge quantities. Yeah. 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 I'm just saying. You know, maybe I want to sell it myself. I have a lot of Amazon deliveries. I want to <laughs> get in on it. Yeah. <laughs> we just need to group together, guys. Yeah. Right. Although, on the flip side, if you wanted to, you could buy an entire ton of cardboard for only 80 euros, and then you could sell it to your friends and family secondhand. Right. <laughs> Something, something, triangle, mid-level marketing scheme. (laughs) Right, right. This sounds like it's only a problem in certain areas because I happen to know for a fact, and don't ask me why I know this, but in Austin at least, and I think the state of Texas as a whole, once something is in the garbage or recycling bin, it is 100% fair game. It's not considered stealing if you take something out of a dumpster in Austin, Texas. I know that. But <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's great for the freegans out that's here. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And that's why we, probably why we have it is because there's people who have lobbied for that sort of progressive lawmaking here. <laughs> well, I think that's lovely, even though I probably wouldn't engage in it myself. I'm glad I have the right. That's right. It's recycling. So, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's the case in Europe because apparently- Right. This phenomenon is very wide, and right. it's crossed from just paper theft to money laundering and fraud with international and local networks interacting. And several media outlets have actually reported on the problem in the U.S., which has been prevalent in New York and California, uh, where I assume the law may be different. Right. And <laughs> when asked if the problem exists in the U.K., Mark Hall from the recycling firm businesswaste.co.uk says he wouldn't be surprised, and that the problem is that it's so untraceable, since it's not like cardboard has a tracker on it. Mm-hmm. And also, theft is hardly ever reported by companies, because why would they? If magic pixies have nicked their waste cardboard, <laughs> that means they don't have to pay a firm... <laughs> Like his to come and pick it up. So they're going to keep quiet. Yeah, absolutely. So the Recycling Association, Simon Ellen, adds that the criminals are also likely to be unaffected by the big structural change that's due to take place in the cardboard recycling industry at the end of the year, which is China banning all imports as part of the government's effort to develop its own internal recycling sector. Mm -hmm. And he says that the legitimate global recycling industry is now sending its cardboard to countries such as Turkey, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, and Thailand instead. So these criminals will just divert their cargo containers of stolen cardboard to those nations as well. All right. Uh, I guess the search for them continues. Yeah, there's a market out there. You're not going to stop them. Yeah, you never know when you're going to find a unexpectedly lucrative business opportunity. <laughs> right. Next link. Next link. All right. Well, we're going to talk about quantum mechanics, and it's going to be Yay! confusing, but I have I have faith right. that we're going to get through it. All right. So this comes from the conversation. Major quantum computational breakthrough is shaking up physics and maths, because apparently the conversation is European. (laughs) So we're going to take this step by step. So a 165-page paper was published recently on quantum complexity theory, and the enigmatic title was MIP star equals RE. And that's it. 
And apparently to people in the know, this means something, and it means something earth-shattering. So complexity theory is the study not of specific problems, but whether certain problems can be solved. So, for example, some problems we know are so complex that they would take millions of years of computation to solve, but mathematicians nonetheless have proven that they are solvable if we had enough time, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas other problems we've sort of identified are definitively not solvable. So easy kind of provable problems are considered in the category P, which stands for the fact that they can be solved in polynomial time. And that includes everything from, like, basic multiplication up to generating new prime numbers, right? It's a process, and we are continuing to slowly generate new prime numbers, but it just takes time. On the other hand, questionable problems are in the category of NP. And these are situations where it's impossible, or at least it seems impossible right now, to prove a negative, right? So if you imagine a police interrogator questioning a suspect, the question, does he have an alibi, if that is presented as a mathematical problem, the answer, yes means he definitely wasn't there. That's provable, right? We can say, oh, we've checked out this alibi. Mm -hmm. The answer is solved. But if he doesn't have an alibi, that doesn't mean that he did the crime. It just means maybe he did or maybe he didn't. So <laughs> these NP problems can also be thought of as like a needle in a haystack. With any given answer, it's easy to check whether that answer is right or wrong. But there are too many answers to sort through, right? You have to pick up each piece of straw and find out if it's a needle. But there is, kind of keeping with the metaphor, there is a way, such as if you set the pile of hay on fire or if you use a strong magnet, <gasps> right? That's one way that you could algorithmically address the entire set of solutions and come up with where is the actual solution hiding within it. And so the mm -hmm. idea of creating an algorithm that could, quote, set the hay on fire or at least prove that such an algorithm could be created would mean that all of these NP problems actually fall into the category of P problems, right? And no one has done it, mm -hmm. but the quest to solve does NP equal P has a $1 million prize for anybody who can solve it. I don't think any of us are up to the task, but that's one of the things that mathematicians would love to do <laughs> one day. Ironically, the little side note, NP equals P itself is an NP problem, because if you could find just one example of an NP problem that could never be P, then it would be like the suspect having an alibi. The answer is clear. No, NP doesn't equal P. Anyway, that's unnecessary. <laughs> so <laughs> everything we've talked about up to now has been groundwork, right? So now we get to the question of quantum computing. And quantum computing changes the meaning of time in the sense that if problems can be solved unimaginably faster then that changes our idea of what is solvable and what's not. And then you get to the question of, let's say we ask a quantum computer a question and it comes back and gives us an answer right away. Should we trust it? And basically, it's pulled something out of the haystack. It says it's a needle. Do we have a way to test even that one thing that it's handed us and say, yes, is it a needle or no, it's a piece of hay, right? And so this kind mm -hmm. of added layer of complexity is the class IP or interrogator protocol. It goes back to the police analogy, right? So if the suspect gives the interrogator an alibi, can we at least run down that one alibi and figure out whether he's lying or not, right? Can we examine the yes case? So now imagine that there is a crime with multiple suspects, right? So this is MIP. And if you could keep those subjects in separate rooms so that they didn't have a chance to coordinate their stories, then having more than one suspect would increase the cop's ability to get to the truth, right? Because they could compare their different stories. They could see who's lying. But if you let the criminals talk to each other, multiple suspects or MIP would decrease the chances of knowing the truth because they could coordinate and build a stronger lie, right? Yes. So in this scenario, 
MIP would be the equivalent of letting quantum computers share an entangled qubit. And qubits are the, the sort of thing that quantum computers use to do their calculations. And as usual, we get into quantum theory and it gets really mind-blowing because one of the things that this paper proves is that when quantum computing is involved, they actually call it MIP star or MIP asterisk because when it comes to quantum theory, more coordination between quantum computing means a greater certainty about the answer. And it's very easy to be like, oh, okay, it's quantum. It's the opposite of whatever we assume to be true. And that's fine. But there's obviously a lot more to it. It's 165 dang pages. But the end result of this paper has blown up several disciplines, right? So for example, there is a theory in physics known as Cyrilson's problem, and it boils down to the quantum version of A equals B, B equals C, therefore we can assume that A equals C. And this paper, among other things, proves that in the quantum realm, A does not equal C. And so, <laughs> yeah, and so it's very, very difficult to understand. The article does a pretty good job. I feel like I have a grasp on the whole, you know, cop interrogator suspect metaphor. But then it also at the end throws in a bunch of like, and the reason this matters is all of these things we thought were true are not true. And it's really just kind of crushing to be reminded constantly that quantum theory is so mind-blowing and hard to understand that I, yeah. <laughs> It's just waiting around the corner to be like, you thought 2020 was crazy? Right, right. Just wait until we get to quantum 2020. <laughs> exactly. There's more than one 2020s, and just because 2020 equals 2020 does not mean it equals 2020. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's good to know that somebody smarter than me is working on this. And if, if they've proven Amen. it, I believe them because I don't have the ability to test whether I believe them or not. So that's what I'm going with. <laughs> I mean, the closest corollary I can imagine to, to relate it to my own experience is with cryptography, mm -hmm. where now we know that there are certain problems that take so long to solve that they're essentially, you know, impossible to solve it's because they're on the scale of millions of years. But once mm -hmm. you add quantum computing into the mix, all these problems that we rely on just being too difficult to solve right. are now totally completely different and change your perception of the practical reality in which you live. Whereas quantum seems to change the literal reality. 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 Right. Any <laughs> of the like, context clues are what shift. Yeah, right. exactly. All right. Well, I guess we're all going to go back to our not real reality now because we're out of time. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> some of the articles we did not get to today, how former samurai and farmers cultivated the first Japanese apples, ATM hackers have picked up some clever new tricks, and the fallacy of the dirigible. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.